The following sermon was preached at Tower View Baptist Church. We are a gospel-centered, relationship-driven church that exists to know, grow in, share, and serve Jesus Christ. We do all this for the glory of God. For more about us, please check out our website at www.towerviewkc.com. Good morning, guys. Thank you so much for joining us. My name is Darren Smith, pastor here at Tower View Baptist Church. We're glad you're joining us as we are going to be studying God's Word this morning from Nehemiah 9 and 10. And for sake of time, we're not going to read the whole of the text. We're just going to be spot-checking uh, different verses as we go through. But we are in our ninth installment of Story of New Beginnings, which has been our study of the book of Nehemiah. So if you're visiting and watching this online, or if you are uh, doing this as a regular person, we want to especially welcome you. Our website is towerviewkc.com. Towerviewkc.com is our website. And so we invite you to that as well. Uh, before we get started this morning, I do want to pray, and as we do, uh, we will go on from there. So let's pray together, and uh, we will get into our text from there. We'll actually just read a few of the opening verses as we get started. Father, thank you so much for our time together. Thank you for this technology that allows us to do this, Lord. We do thank you, and we pray, Lord, that you are lifted high and glorified. Give us wisdom. Pray for anyone watching this or hearing this or uh, as it's live or recorded, Lord, that you would draw them to yourself. Thank you, Lord, for your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, Nehemiah chapter 9, we're actually going to start and pick it up in verse 1, and we'll go down to the start of the prayer in verse 6, and then we'll read selected passages as we go through from there. And this is what Nehemiah records. He says, Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all the foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. Verse 3, And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. But for another quarter of the day they made confession and worshipped the Lord their God. So on the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shabaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, and Shenai, and they cried with a loud voice to the Lord your God. And then the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashabaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shobaniah, and Pethaniah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. And then the prayer, which we are not told exactly who is praying this. We're assuming Ezra, who led them in the reading of the scripture, or maybe it's one of the Levites, the priests, uh, modern-day pastors, says this. He says, you are the Lord, you alone. It's a key phrase. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve them, and the host of heaven worships you. Made the decision to go ahead and combine both of these chapters because there's a lot of names and there's a very big prayer that Nehemiah is saying, as, uh, or is presumably Nehemiah. But one thing about this is that this chapter reminds me of a t-shirt I heard and read about or saw one time that said, pray like a farmer, pray like a farmer. You know, scripture often compares us as Christians and as ministers to farmers, James 5, 7 says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until he receives it, uh, receives the early and the late rains. 
Paul told Timothy in the, in the, the epistles that a hardworking farmer has the first share of the crops. So that t-shirt, pray like a farmer, it's, it's very, very in line with what the New Testament says. Another thought is, is that what is true of a farmer is also true of us as individual Christians. We at times are to be patient, we're at times to persevere, and all of us, sometimes all we can do is just pray. There's sometimes literally nothing else we can do. If you have someone in the hospital, uh, sometimes medical knowledge says it's done, and we are called to pray at all times. And Jesus, of course, told a parable about a farmer laying down at night. What did he do? He sowed the seed, and now he prays that the Lord causes that it would grow. Farmers are unique in many ways. We don't have any farmers in our midst. We're more of an urban, suburban area where our church is located. Yet to meet a farmer is to meet a very patient person, one who is usually very mild-mannered as they go through the seasons. And so to ride the highs and the lows, not knowing what to expect, sometimes from one day to the next, even despite the best technology. And they're committed to the work. In fact, sometimes they're dominated by it. They can't do it half-heartedly. And if you're a farmer, you're a farmer. It's, it's more than work. It's a commitment to the land. And sometimes, as families go, depending on the location, sometimes for generations, you seem to know every bump and valley and crevice, and, and that becomes their life. So, friend, this is exactly what is happening here in the midst of Nehemiah. Last week, we saw, if you will, as it were, the, the, the seed of revival starting to be planted and grow a little bit. But now, like a farmer, now all the prayers of Nehemiah and Ezra and all those who are leading Israel back, not only physically, but more so importantly, spiritually, are now seeing the revival come full bloom. And so it makes us wonder about our own lives, about our own times, about our own situations, because what is coming to America? Can we anticipate the same widespread spiritual revival that Nehemiah and Ezra saw in their day? Or should we expect a deepening social decay? And what would it look like if revival in our hearts and in our church, if God were to grant it? These are questions I want to answer today, because the big idea is that true revival happens when the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of God, uses an intensification of ordinary things, ordinary means, like preaching, prayer, the Lord's Supper, to bring about extraordinary results. True revival happens when the Spirit of God uses an intensification of ordinary means to bring about extraordinary results. Look, besides praying for myself, our, our children, our family, and our, you know, our lives and our church, probably nothing takes my prayer more than praying for revival that in our day there might be an awakening to God himself. With a seed that is preached, that it fully blooms, just like it, we, we're going to see in Nehemiah 9, that thousands of people come to know Christ. And friends, you never know what the Lord is going to do. It could start tonight. It could start tomorrow. It could be next week or 10 years. But one of the most frustrating things is that, you know, especially as a parent, we can read the Bible with our kids and you know, we can correct them, you know, sit up and pay attention and all those things, and, and we think it's for naught. But that one time, that one thing clicks, it changes their lives. Or, you know, when you share with a coworker or a neighbor or a random person you've never met, and you feel like they just walked away mad. But sometime later, that they, 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 they find out or you find out that they've become a Christian, what you did in that moment was a, a great thing. You never know. You never know 
what he is doing below the surface. I mean, wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't it be great to see that in our day? I hope you long for that. So four things today in Nehemiah 9 and 10. We're going to see four telltale signs of a revival and how it begins and how it's sustained by the Holy Spirit. We're going to see it's with the Word. We're going to see it's with confession of sin. We're going to see it's with praying people and with a firm commitment, chapter 10, to God in true repentance. The first sign I want you to see as, as, as we open up is verses 1 and 2. The first sign of revival is that they read the Word and they preached it in the hearing of the people. Revival always begins with the Word of God. You notice in verses 9, 1, and 2, it causes sorrow of sin. We saw this last week in chapter 8, verse 9, that uh, they were told to go off and have joy and celebrate. Even while they were confessing their sins, the joy of the Lord became their strength. And now the people of Israel are back after the Feast of Booze, and they're hungry, and they're listening to the Bible, to the Word of God. And, and, and the priests are leading them in confessing their sins. And they're weeping. They're not just saying something like, like someone would go in a confessional booth and just say the things just to get it off their conscience. They have, they're weeping because they know how far they are from God and how they are not with Him in relationship. And friend, revival always begins with, with, the, tre- with, the, with the treading of the Word of God, with, with the, the Word of God coming upon people. This is why it is terrible when the Word is not preached in churches. It doesn't matter how many come to the doors or how many uh, go online or how many one has in uh, drive-in church. If the Word isn't preached, it is not going to have effect because it is through the foolishness, 1 Corinthians reminds us, of preaching that people come to Christ. It's God's chosen instrument. And so as we look at verses 9, 1, and 2, you see very clearly that first mark. And it's continuing what we studied last week, that the word came before them. And when the word came before them, they heard everything that they needed to hear. So the word comes first. The Holy Spirit begins revival and has sustained its revival with the word. But secondly, it's through confession of sin. Look at chapter 9, verse 3. They listened for three hours to the word, and then for a quarter of the day or so, and then they spent another three hours, as it were, confessing their sins. Here's the truth. Revival revival begins with a word that is closely followed by confession of sin. Revival begins with a word that is closely followed by confession of sin. Notice, they confessed, then they worshiped. They heard the word, they confessed, then they worshiped. Revival always begins this way. They are led by the hand of the Lord to confess their sins, and the holiness of God rattles their soul, their cage, and there are none who can hear the law of God and not be left undone. You can share the gospel with someone today and lead them through that they are a sinner. They will deny it, but I guarantee you it impacts them. Every time we share the gospel, it is a positive thing. It's a win if they accept Christ, if it's a win if they tell me more, and if it's a win even if they reject it because God's word never returns void. And we must say with Isaiah, especially those of us who know Christ when we hear the word, we are like a man undone with unclean lips. And we need to be like Peter was in John 13. We need, you know, remember that time where Jesus was washing their feet, showing them his servant example before he went to the cross. And Peter said, well, Lord, if you're going to wash my feet, I mean, wash my hands, wash my head, might as well give me a bath, Lord. It's basically what he meant. But what Jesus was alluding to 
And what we need to remember is that when the word comes, that second thing happens as well. There's confession of sin. And the sinner's response is much like Peter's is, wash it all, Lord, because only you can do it. So what happened after they confessed? They began to worship. Notice verses 4 and 5. They began to worship, and I won't go through the names again, but they say in verse 5, stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above the heavens. There are many that say that preaching of the law, preaching God's word with fire and brimstone is not something most people want to hear. That's right. They don't want to hear it. But we also must remember that before we can get to the good news that Jesus died for us and loved us, we have to get to the bad news, to the bad news that we are sinners apart from him. If you're watching this, you're hearing this, and you don't realize that, friend, you have sinned against a thrice holy God, and your sin has separated you from him, and your sins are like a filthy rag. There's nothing you can do to inject any goodness into them. The only way to come to heaven is through Jesus Christ. And so we need to know how ugly we are apart from God. Thomas Goodwin, one of the Puritans, said it this way. He said, if you would see what sin is, go to Mount Calvary. There, he says, we see the ugliness of sin. Or George Swinnick, one of the other Puritans, said this, and I posted this on Facebook a few days ago. He said, quote, when we take the size of sin too low and too short and wrong, when we measure it by the wrong it does to ourselves, our families, or our neighbors, or the nation we live, Indeed, somewhat of its evil and its mischief do appear, but to take its full length and proportion, since full length and proportion, we must consider the wrong it does to this great, this glorious, this incomparable God. Sin is incomparably malignant because the God principally injured by it is incomparably excellent. In other words, you don't just sin against others or your nation or your family. But the reason they confess their sin, just like Psalm 51.4, as David prayed, it's against God and God alone. And that's what he says. So Nehemiah recounts over and over again, as we're going to get into the third point, how faithful God has been despite their sin. Those first two points are quick. We, those telltale signs of how revival begins, it begins with the word. That's chapter 8, verses 9, 1 through 2, begins with confession of sin. But it also, starting in verse 6, the third mark, telltale sign of, of revival starting and sustained is with praying people. And this is the lion's share of the chapter. Actually, the rest of the chapter is a prayer. And we ought to pray for revival for the same reason we ought to pray for everything else, because God is God and we are not. Look, there's no formula for revival. There's no do this, do that, and revival will come to your land, your church, your family, your, your life. But I don't see how any primary ingredient wouldn't be persistent, pleading, desperate prayer. And we are not going to read again for sake of time every verse that is here. I'm going to summarize them, put on your, your, your racing cap because we're going to go through. But there are two ways they acknowledge God in these prayers. And the first one here as they seek revival is they see God as creator. Look at verse 6. He says, you are Lord, you alone, you made the heavens and the heavens of heavens with their host, you alone and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them and host, the host of heaven worships you. Look, when we neglect this truth, when we neglect in the beginning God or God alone does these things, we will all be out of sorts. It's you alone. 
When they pray, they're, they're praying several things here. They're praying, God, you are the creator. You're the sustainer. Lord, it all, the, the buck stops with you, but it also, everything started with you. There's some out there who believe that God answers to some heavenly tribunal above him. Friend, God is the first and the last, the alpha, the omega. There is no one he answers to. In fact, all of us stand naked, Hebrews 4.13 tells us, before our creator, and we will give an account for ourselves. But God accounts to no one. He answers to no one. That's why he's God. But as they're praying for their nation, they acknowledge that phrase, and you're going to see it all along this prayer. You alone. You alone. Christian, this is a great reminder to you that your salvation is through God alone, more specifically in Christ alone. There's nothing we bring to the table. We are not good enough, fast enough, beautiful enough, ugly enough. <clears throat> nothing merits God's favor. But the only thing we do know is that God is with us. So they pray. They pray. They've, they've heard the word. They've confessed their sin. They're praying. They acknowledge him as creator. But secondly, they acknowledge him as Savior. Look at verse 7. It says, you are God who chose Abram. You are the Lord who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before him, before you, and made with him the covenant to go to the offspring of the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Pezzarite, the Jebusite, etc., etc., etc. You are God of promise. In other words, you are God of salvation. When we want revival in our land, it starts with acknowledging that salvation, as Jonah said in Jonah 2.9, salvation is of the Lord. And that's it. He says in verse 9, you kept your promises. There's not one promise that God has not kept. That's why we pray. If God ever didn't answer or if God didn't hear our prayers, we'd have no reason to pray. But because God is sovereign, we do pray. Because no matter how we pray, he is with us. And then you go down to verse 9. It says, and this is that phrase, acknowledging God as Savior. Through the rest of the, till verse 31, that word you. And I'm just going to run through these verses. You, verse 9, saw the affliction. You, God, brought signs and wonders against Pharaoh. Verse 11, you, God, divided the sea. Verse 12, you, God, led them in the day. Verse 13, God, you came down and gave them rules. Verse 14, you made known to them the Sabbath. Verse 15, you gave them bread and told them to possess the land. And stop right there. You, God, did all this stuff. God, you were faithful. You were the one who stood in our place and did it when we didn't. Because look at verse 16. He tells you, here's the big contrast. God, you've done all the work. You're the God of salvation. But look at verse 16. He says to them, but they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. There's a big contrast here, but we did not obey you. I mean, shouldn't this be how it ends? I mean, shouldn't God just eradicate the people? But that's not what he does. People in revival get that he is abounding in steadfast love, that God is gracious and merciful. And so in verse 17, he says, you are God ready to forgive and you did not forsake them. I mean, is this your view of God? Do you see him as this merciful? Is there anyone that you think in this world is beyond his reach, beyond his forgiveness? I mean, I think you feel like I do that our culture is in the toilet. But do you feel that it's over? Or do you look out 
And do you pray and, and, and you say, we serve a merciful, a gracious, a, 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 a God who is able to pour out His Spirit. And what do you pray for? What do you hope for? What do you expect? And church, let me remind you of this. The churches that will excel in COVID and post-COVID days and in the future are churches that do not let culture, do not let viruses, do not let anything else except God direct their path. Sure, we need to be reasonable, accommodate, do those things. Absolutely. We want people to be safe. But if we're looking to culture for our direction, then we are missing the very things that God has given us to do. Verse 18, he says, even when they made for themselves a golden calf, you, Lord, you in your greatness and mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. He's a saving God. He's a gracious God. Verse 20, you gave them your good spirit. Verse 21, for 40 years you sustained them. Verse 22, you gave them kingdoms. Verse 23, you multiplied their children. Verse 24, you subdued their enemies. Why do we pray like farmers? We pray like farmers because salvation is his work. While God was being faithful, all his people were not being faithful, yet he was with them. People in revival know this. Prayer go, this prayer goes on to show how people rebel. But verse 32 picks it up, and we won't go through all the, uh, the mischief that they got themselves into, but look at verse 32. It says, Now therefore, O God, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, that's a phrase that Nehemiah used many times in this book, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all our hardships seem little to you that have come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all the people. Yet you have been righteous, verse 33, in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. Church, this is a prayer for a nation, but it starts this prayer. If you're an underliner, verses 32 and 33 are a prayer for individual Christians. Husbands, for fathers, families, grandparents, for your family. And church, dare I say for us right now, this is a prayer for us. Lord, you have been righteous in all that you've done. Lord, you have been good in all that you've said. But we have acted wickedly. Look, people request that God do amazing things in their day. They make a request. They do all these things. God bless us, God bless us, God bless us. But until we have the prayer that Nehemiah and Ezra had, until we have that prayer, just like it is, that we will never see revival in our land. They say, Lord, you rebuilt the wall. You revived our hearts. So we're going to pray to you more. Lord, we want more of you. We don't want more of us. We want more of you, Lord. And friend, revival always begins with the word. It always begins with confession, and it always begins with prayer. And I would encourage you today to read through this prayer. Pray as, as it were in your own life for this to be true, that God would work through. So what are the telltale signs of revival? It's with the word, it's with confession of sin, it's with praying people. But finally, and this is summarizing chapter 10, it's with a firm commitment to God in true repentance. It's a firm commitment to God in true repentance. If you go down to the end of chapter 10, again, we're not going to read through all the names that came through. Uh, I, I would fuddle those anyway. But if you look at the end of chapter 10, it talks about the obligations of the covenant. And it talks about what they did. And it says in verse 32, we also take uh, ourselves the obligation 
And it goes on in verse 35, we obligate ourselves to bring first fruits. It just talks about all the things they're going to do. And I just want to summarize it for you and then give some application. They are dedicating like farmers to the work of God. They're worshiping, they're serving, they're glorifying God. It's not willy-nilly, but it's God you get it all. They do this in three main ways in their commitment. Their, their family life, they tell God, is now going to be dictated by him. Their family life. It isn't racism or anti-ethnicity, but they separate themselves from those not of God's people. They are saying that we are God, we're God-fearing people, and we promise not to wed our sons or our daughters to those that don't know you. Now, so many people have taken this the wrong way. I'm going to uh, get on a rabbit trail for a second, but we're going to pull it back. But, but they say that their family life is going to be dictated by God. Two things. One, you're a Christian and you're dating a non-Christian, you need to stop. 2 Corinthians 5 makes it clear that light has nothing to do with darkness. Friend, if you're trying to missionary date where you say, well, I'm going to date this person and convert him to Christ, and then we'll be ready and good in the Lord's eyes, walk away. Be friends with them, share the gospel with them, but your job is not to convert them. That's God's job. Your job is to walk faithfully. Second thing is this, side note, we do not believe that mixed-race marriages are, are, are anti-biblical. We celebrate that God brings together people of different uh, skin colors and ethnicities and things to, be, to do that. It's not what's in view here in Ezra 10. What they are saying is, is that our family life will be dictated by you. Their worship is most important. And so, Christian, you can become a hermit in some cave somewhere and never be around a non-Christian in your life. You can have a church bubble, a subculture uh, bubble. You can have a, a, a bubble of homeschooling. You can have a bubble of whatever you want to shield yourself from the world. And you need to be not of this world. There's a fine line, but you got to work in this world. you got to live in this world. You drive in this world. And what they are saying is they're making a firm commitment to God that the best that we can in every area of life, Lord, you're going to be first. As for me and my house, Joshua says, we will serve the Lord. That's exactly what they're saying. They have a firm commitment to their family life. The second thing they have a firm commitment to is that they will obey the Sabbath day and the whole worship of God. All that they are and all that they will be is going to be centered on worshiping God. Christian, this is a great reminder to you that in these days that the Lord has set apart for us a day, resurrection day, the Lord's day that we are to honor. Now, as Baptists, we believe that's under your conscience, under the Lord, to do what you will on that day. But friend, I would encourage you, there's a real benefit in observing the Lord's day and committing yourself to God's word and his people. I'm not going to get into particulars of that, but I will just say this is that if you treat the Lord's Day just like a Sunday, just like any other day, then you're completely missing the boat here. They were, if you want to see revival, they were firm that God would run their families and he would run their calendar, especially on the day that Christ rose from the dead. And Easter is coming up on the calendar at least. We remind our folks of this so often, but friend, we celebrate Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday every week here at Tower View because God gives it to us every week. So they de dedicated their families, they dedicated their time, especially the Lord's Day, and finally, that they were going to the temple. It's only natural, they were going to give to the building of God's work. They were going to give to the restoration of God's structures and, and all those things. And it's only natural that, there, that where your commitment is, your finances will flow. It's not so strange that in times of revival that God's people give much work to the work of God. 
When God's people are renewed, they are generous. And when God's people are ready to move forward, they will do so ready to give and unwilling not to give at that point. And so we aren't tied to this world. Christian, let me remind you that he who dies with the most toys does not win. You can't take anything here, out there, First Timothy 6. And religion wasn't relegated for them to prayer before a meal or Sundays, but it was their life. And this is what happens when revival happens. When revival happens, the word is taken seriously. Confession of sin is taken seriously. Prayer is taken seriously. And finally, a firm commitment to God in our families, in the Lord's day that he set apart from us, and finally, what we give to the Lord's work. It's not a guarantee, but those are what we see here. I mean, do you pray for this? Friends, our God is not dead. He is alive. He's active. He's moving. He hears the prayers of his people. I mean, how awesome would it to be and have these things? And I think God does give us these things. As we close, I just want to say a few remarks as we move forward. I think these will be helpful for you. Number one, I believe that evangelical churches will not see revival until repentance, that we change our major focus to our sin rather than the world's sin. You did not see anything in here that we read through that they talked about what the outside Gentiles did. They acknowledged that God put them over them in, 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 in judgment for their disobedience. But a revival occurs when those who think they already know the gospel discover that they do not really or fully know it at all. And this leads to repentance and change. And so I think our churches need to take saying, well, if those sinners would stop sinning. Friend, that's what sinners do. Babies go to the bathroom in their diaper, so sinners will sin. It's not rocket science. Christian, we need to look at ourselves and pray, God, humble us, give us wisdom, help us to seek you in these times. Number two, look, I don't know if America's on the cusp of revival, much less if the world is primed for global awakening through this pandemic, but I know if revival comes, it'll be through the open surrender of God's people who are burdened to repent proclaim Christ, and pray their guts out. We are running out of things to lose in these days, and we won't get to keep them anyway. We might as well focus on the things that really matter. Third, if you want to squelch a revival, try scheduling one. I grew up in a church with good intentions that scheduled a revival very often, that we'd bring in special speakers. I remember them bringing their RVs and parking in the parking lot, and they preached the Word of God. It has nothing to do with that. But consequently, we never had a revival. Friends, we don't schedule God. While we're working diligently, we nevertheless pray for revival because God is sovereign over our souls and my strategies are not. Fourth is this. I pray for revival because the Holy Spirit is not my butler. He is not my bellhop. He's not my, he's not my servant. We stopped praying for revival because the Holy Spirit was getting in the ways of our programs and the ways of our things. We pray for revival because when the Spirit hijacks a church, he squashes us of our self-sufficiency and stops us from taking him for granted. And friend, lastly, but number five, if you truly long for revival, we will rejoice even when it starts at the church down the road. If we want revival, may God raise it up in another place first, if not our place. 
People claim they want to see revival in their churches and in their nations, but they complain if their pastor goes a little too long or preaches the gospel too often. Look, if God chooses to do that in another church, may we join them. That's why we pray for other churches often in ours, because we are on the same team. Every church is either headed for reformation and revival or retreat and ruin. There is no middle ground. And the constant prayer of our hearts ought to be, Lord, bring revival to those churches, those countries, those contexts that have heard the gospel. And Lord, bring the gospel to those countries, contexts, and churches who've never heard it. It's weird to think the gospel will never preach, be preached in a church, but oh, my friend, it exists. Christian, if you want to see revival, we must repent of our lack of repentance. We must weep over our lack of weeping, and we must pray about our lack of prayer. Because true revival, our big idea, happens when the Spirit of God uses an intensification of ordinary means to bring about extraordinary results. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for this day and this time. Lord, we do pray that you, you teach us from your word today. It's a big chunk of scripture that we've had to go over, but Lord, we really ask and we really pray. We thank you for your word. May it do its work in our hearts. Lord, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Guys, thank you so much for watching. Again, my name is Darren Smith. On behalf of our staff, Pastor Nelson Nisley, Pastor Craig Johnson, and our office manager, Judy Braden, we really appreciate you today. If you're not a Christian, hey, thanks so much for being here and hanging out with us. We would just ask that you drop a note below and let us know how we can serve or pray for you, but most importantly, that you would turn to Christ for him and him alone to save you. Guys, thank you so much. God bless, and have a great day. Bye-bye.